Welcome to Talking Teenagers. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Hello, welcome to Talking Teenagers. This week we are with Alicia Drummond, the superstar from Teenage Tips. Tell us a little bit more about that, Alicia. What's that about? So Teen Tips is... Teen Tips. No, you're all right. I'll let you off. Teen Tips is... It's a company that actually has evolved over a long time. So it all started uh, when I very first qualified as a therapist back in 2009. My kids were at a school and the deputy head there said, oh, this year you do that listening thing. I was like, yep, that's uh, three, four years training, but that's fine. Can you come and talk to our pupils about social and emotional skills? So I said, yeah, absolutely. And that's really where it all began. And uh, I went in and did a lot of training on communication skills with teenagers and then that evolved because I was also working as a therapist so I was working predominantly with teenagers in therapy and it sort of struck me that actually as a therapist there's a certain amount you can do in the room but ultimately you're always sending them back into the same environments and that if we could perhaps just tweak the environments a tiny bit we would make it easier for them to be okay and so I then did a lot of training on the parenting side and gradually the number of workshops and the number of schools and the number of parents has grown so we now work in about 120 different schools and we do a lot of workshops for parents sometimes for them you know in their homes but mostly in schools and then two years ago we started looking into filming and first of all we work with a few schools on it and we develop the parenting teens workshop which is all available online so the so the website itself is for parents and for teachers yeah so so give us just um if they go onto your website you've mentioned a few of the things that are going to be on it what 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 are they going to find well we try and put as much free stuff as possible up there as well so yes there are the courses which are you know, chargeable, but there's all kinds of podcasts because podcasts are, I love making podcasts. They're, They're great, fun. aren't they? They're really <laughs> fun, aren't they? So yeah, so we've got podcasts that kind of track alongside what, what their kids will be doing in PSHE. So if your kid's doing, you know, if it's, if they're talking about drugs, there's a whole podcast for parents on drugs. We've just put one out last week because it was a world mental health day for you know just how to understanding mental illness and how to spot the signs and what to do if you do think that your child is struggling and there's ones on gambling and there's ones on nutrition and so there's lots of lots and lots of resources and blogs as well we do lots of blogs and you speak in schools a lot, don't you? Yes. Um, is that to parents or to staff or to pupils? Or what, what's All the sort three. of balance? All three. All three. So yeah. very often I'll go in and I'll do, you know, a whole day. So that could yeah. be up to six talks and you could have six different topics. Uh, so sort of four for students and then one for staff and one for parents. So, yeah, lots of different things. And what would you say, you know, we are living in a in a huge season of you know mental health has become and well-being has become almost like a new religion hasn't it what would you say the real priorities are possibly the most important one is sleep i think understanding what's happening because the more you understand the the and if you increase people's self-awareness then 
ultimately they are much better able to self-manage. So helping them understand what's happening in their brains, what's, why their emotions are all over the shop, why suddenly mum and dad are incredibly embarrassing and your peers are incredibly important and helping them. A lot of what I do is I don't really believe in saying to, especially teenagers, don't do this or don't do that because... Well, also because I remember what I was like. Yeah. And if somebody said that, I was like, wow, if he's going to... You know, I remember my dad saying, I'll give you 100 quid if you don't smoke till you're 21. And I thought, God, if, it's, if he's going to pay that much, it must be really amazing. <laughs> and kind of, you know, took to it with great gusto at a 15 yeah. or something. Yeah. So it's more about helping them understand, because they're not wired to be able to understand consequences. So helping them understand the options and also empowering them to have tools they can yeah. use. You talked about communication earlier. In right at the start of your journey, was that talking to how to talk to teenagers, or was it was it explained to me, or was it getting teenagers to talk? If that doesn't sound, it's a little bit of both. I do getting teenagers to talk definitely in term, with parents, absolutely, because I think at the at the kind of heart of every good relationship is communication. You know, people don't come people don't come for counselling if they've got good communication with. So that's the most important thing. And what I started doing was really helping them. It was actually their peer listening service within school. So giving them uh, the tools to be active listeners. Um, But actually what I spend quite a lot of time doing now is helping them develop their social skills. Because if you look at what the job markets of the future are going to require, number one is social skills. Number two is creativity number three is initiative and number four is critical thinking and I think as they have become more and more present online and some of those social skills face-to-face are going and I think in an age where we're going to be relying on technology for more and more things social skills are going to become more and more important it's, it's interesting isn't it because we we often lose sight of that as parents and as teachers because you're thinking oh they, you know, what are they going to get in this subject or what are they getting in that but the learning in schools and through adolescence is so much bigger and more important than your economics A-level paper two. You know, it's about those skills, isn't it? And yeah. actually what employers want. And a lot of the research coming back from employers is that people are arriving without those skills, you know, this new generation and how we skill them up in those areas. I mean, as parents and as educators, what, what, what have you found works? What's good? I think encouraging face-to-face communication. So for parents, I'll say it can be really, really quite simple as getting, you know, another family or different members of your family around a table to eat and mixing them up. And don't let all the kids sit at one end with their gadgets. Mix them up so they have to talk to the adults. Um, Trying to make sure that they've got that balance between online conversation and and face-to-face. Because apart from anything else, actually we produce quite different brain chemicals when we're talking to somebody face to face um which is important for you know how we feel for schools i think probably one of the best subjects that you could teach and i think it personally i think it should be kind of compulsory the whole way through is philosophy because philosophy requires creative thinking there isn't very often a right or wrong answer it requires empathy to be able to hear another person's perspective. And I think it's a really, really valuable subject. 
We often overlook the listening side of it, don't we? We often think that, oh, well, they need to give speeches or they need to do this, but actually it, the listening is, is, the, is the, the primary skill rather mm -hmm. than the talking. It's actually the way in which we form our community, the foundation of our communication. And it's true that they're not always great listeners, are they, teenagers? No, no, because no, <laughs> they're quite narcissistic, you know, and, yeah. and then actually they need to be, sure. you know, they're trying to find their identity, so that's yeah. fair enough. But I do think the listening skills are going to become more and more important. I always remember a matron actually in one of the schools and um, she said, well, I remember being told you've got one of these pointing at her mouth and two of these and you should use them in the proportion in which they were given to you. <laughs> actually, and I think that's true with parents as well. I think that a lot of staff, you know, schools and parents are in danger of doing too much for them. You know, and the number of parents was absolutely horrified by the idea that when I say to them, you know, make them make their own doctor's appointments, make them ring up and book a restaurant. But that's all part of it, isn't yes, it? Yes, very much so. I think I think we are in danger of trying to fill holes wherever we see holes. We we always sort of joke that well, the two kind of worst things for a teenager in our experience, well, it's not a joke really, it's a sort of rather flippant comment, but it holds true, is a sort of helicopter mother who helicopters over the child the whole time, wanting to step in and do things and not let them struggle, and an absent father. And often you can get a combination of the two, and that's pretty lethal, isn't it? I think that in my, uh, you know, when it's coming from the sort of therapy side, the families that tend to get into trouble are where parents are either holding on too tight and not letting them take their independence and make a few mistakes, or where they've panicked and thought, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing and step right away and and so it's you know it's a tough line for parents isn't it because you're it's that very fine line between holding on and letting go yeah. that we're constantly yeah. negotiating it's the roots and wings isn't it yeah. giving them roots but also giving them wings and trying yeah. to get there and i think sometimes we need to make sure that parents are okay to make mistakes we all get it wrong you know and in, in that process and actually not to be too hard on yourself when you do because i don't think there's a parent who's <laughs> who's no. got that right every single time. And sometimes saying sorry to the kids and saying, oh, we were, we should have let you or not is a really healthy way of creating communication, I think. Well, I think it's also deeply important modelling because if we can't say sorry to them when we get things wrong, why should they think that that's something that you need to do? So I think so, it's important to let them see us get things yeah, wrong no, occasionally sure. as well. well I children see that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So back to the social skills, listening is a key one. What other ones would you say for parents are quite important to see their children developing? One of the things that I will often end up doing in therapy with 15, 16 year olds is helping them come up with a list of conversation starters. And it sounds so ridiculous, yeah. but actually social interaction is a lot less frightening if you've got up your sleeve a few and I usually make them get to up to about 20 because then you've kind of got something for pretty much any and if one doesn't work you can keep going down the list and it's really simple but actually we don't do it with them it's interesting because my children two of my children have said to me oh I, you know I don't like that whole talking to adults and you know when they ask you questions so I always say to them well you be the one that asks the questions then you know, take that fear of them asking you things and not knowing the answer or not sure what they're looking for and ask them, get on the, it's called get on the front foot. And actually they have found that helpful, I think. But they don't find it an easy or an instinctive thing to do. 
Um, well, I would say to mine, you know, on the whole, most people quite like talking about themselves if you get given an opportunity. It's that's also that line, isn't it? That interested people yes. are interesting people. Yes. Resilience is another word that is now a sort of buzzword and employers will often say that's what we need. We need people that are resilient, which are the kind of high flyers that fly through school that have never had a setback, don't know what to do when they have a setback, do they? No, I think uh, absolutely. And if your first time you crash and burn is in your first job, it it can feel pretty overwhelming. It is a big buzzword, uh, but there's sort of really four parts to it in terms of it's not... Resilience isn't a thing. It's a collection of things that we do that build our resilience. So, you know, we become self-confident when we are confident in our competence. And in order to develop confidence in your competence, you have to you have to do something a number of times. So it it's a, it takes time. So um, I think self-esteem is the most important thing. Self-esteem is that core sense of being okay. Mm. It's that core sense that love that comes from your parents is completely unconditional. There's absolutely nothing you could do, good or bad, Mm. that would change how loved you are. And when we do the helicoptering, actually the message, the subliminal message is, my love is conditional upon your performance. And if that's the case, then it can be taken away as well and that's not going to do anything for anybody's self-esteem no and I, I think possibly too is we don't quite trust you to do this on your own yeah so that whole competence thing you were talking about which is i need to be here because if i'm not here you can't go you can't do it and so actually the, the message they often receive is well i can't do this on my own yeah yeah so we damage their self-esteem we damage their self-confidence and their self-efficacy so that self-efficacy self-efficacy is your belief in your ability to set and achieve tasks and goals and to have some form of influence over your future and when we do everything for them we take that away so i think that's a big part of resilience i think also resilience is about self-awareness so in terms of the mental health you know understanding what pushes your buttons understanding what you need to feel okay so your coping strategies because that leads to self-management the self-awareness i utterly agree with i think one of the issues in teenage world isn't it is their identity is changing it's much more fluid we don't want to be too fixed on saying this is the kind of person you are because they're constantly changing and you see them develop how would you help a teenager as a parent go through that kind of changing identity? What, what should a parent do? I think there's quite a few different things. I think the first one is to take a large step sideways and give them that message that, you know, this is, a, this is an amazing time because you get to try all kinds of different things and it's really normal to question everything because you're trying to find your identity but try not to give yourself any labels too quickly. Um, because you might find that those change um, and you don't want to stick yourself. So I think giving them permission to um, explore and experiment, try new things and reevaluate. Yeah, we call it sort of trying on a different hat, you know, that kind of just seeing how it feels and walking around in it. I mean, I was saying to my wife the other day, you have to understand as they get older that we're not the main event, we're a sideshow. So that whole idea of... (laughs) Standing on the sides, if you don't stand there, they're soon going to push you there, aren't they? <laughs> well, I think there is that, but I also do think that if you if we think of of um, our development through life, we we go through eight stages, 
um, and the first four are done before you even hit adolescence. So stage one is that zero to two, which is all about attachment and attachment styles. And so they desperately need us to to form a secure bond. And that, that secure bond will influence how they greet and meet other people all the way through. So they really, really need us at that stage. But the other stage that I think they really, really need us is adolescence. Because they're trying to become adult males and adult females. As parents, we're the adult females and adult females that they know best. There is a slightly alarming statistic that about 70% of our behavioural learning is done via modelling. And as parents, you are their primary role models. So they're watching you, even if it doesn't feel like it. You might feel like the side event, but they are still watching us like hawks to make up their decisions. Which bit do I want to take through as my other identity and which bit am I going to kick into the long grass? No, it's definitely true that the things that you start to sort of think about your children, oh, I don't like that kind of... You start thinking, well, that's me, isn't it? (laughs) 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 They just got that from me. (laughs) And the world is changing, and it's changing fast, isn't it? And, I mean, what, 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 what would you say are the principal challenges for young people in, in the light of the changes? So, you know, where is it changing fastest? I think this is not the most obvious one, but actually I think in terms of what is going on in the world, are we really that surprised that an awful lot of them, one in six, is anxious? You know, because we, the adults, are looking around and thinking, oh, my goodness, what's happening here? And that often then filters down from our our sense of anxiety and insecurity into, you, well, you just, you just have to get the best results you possibly can because unless you're at the top of the food chain, you're never going to get a, a job, which is completely not the case. But then that puts them under huge amounts of pressure to perform. So you've got the two extremes there. That Again, the one parents that are overly pushing and the ones that are going for the total hands-off approach i think the online world there was a big thing that came out recently wasn't it a state of the nation report that actually social media is not doing them any harm well i think that depends what you're doing on social media doesn't it so i think the fast changing world of online activities is fantastic in a million ways but of course it has a downside yeah. Coming back to the sort of anxiety one, I heard you talk on one of your podcasts actually about stress and about, you know, not always panicking about stress. The stress is a helpful, useful tool. And I think for as parents, just sometimes, I mean, my daughter often just, when she was going through her GCSEs afterwards, she said to me, I just wanted you to acknowledge my stress. That's all I wanted you to do. And I, I think I got it hopelessly wrong and sort of tried to fix things or, you know, whatever. But she she was just saying, look, I felt stressed. I just needed to off, offload that. And uh, I think that's really helpful, isn't it? To just say, actually, stress is normal. You, you're right to feel stressed at this point. Part of what you're learning is how to manage stress. And, you know, it, I guess there are sort of often in boys in exams, stereotypically, they're not stressed enough and mm-hmm. girls are often too stressed. That's a big stereotype, but it does hold truth in some degrees. How, how, how we as parents manage that's important, isn't it? Yeah, really, really important. And, you know, I say to them when I'm work, I was working with Year 11 on Saturday, you know, when we were looking at a kind of continuum of zero being totally chill going into exams and mm. 10 being chances of me getting through the door are quite small. 
And, you know, you'd say, I'd say to them, so where would you put yourself? And there were always a few, actually a couple of the girls as well, there were probably about six or eight of them said, oh, zero to two, no problem at all. And then there were some at the opposite end of the spectrum. And I said, well, actually, where you really want to be is around four or five, because the research would show you that really quite moderate stress for short amount of times makes you perform better. So, and, and I think we've got that whole thing, of, oh, I'm so stressed, it's all so stressy, I'm so busy. And you ask somebody how they are these days, and they'll tell you how busy they are. Yes. Yeah. That model is the inverted you, isn't it, in the, um, in the sports world, where the, the, the sort of measure between performance and pressure, there's a sort of middle ground. When you're sort of halfway up the pressure model, your performance is at its best. And as staff, as teachers often, what we're trying to identify are the people who are either at the bottom or I've gone too far and they're either too stressed or not stressed enough and trying to just put them up or nudge them down. And that's yeah. quite hard sometimes. <laughs> yes. And actually what you really want to do is take the, you know, if you think of it in terms of a sort of bell curve, you want to take the middle section out and let them have their own space and yeah. then let the other two groups mingle because yeah. stress yes. is quite catching. So yes. And yeah. Uh, yeah. so they can pass a bit onto the ones that need to rev yes. up a bit more. Yeah. That's right. Well, I think uh, lots of pupils have identified I can't talk to this person before yeah. an exam because they just freak me out. <laughs> Which is great because yeah. that's the self, self-awareness self exactly. thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and recognising that yeah. and, and sort of helping them to reach that decision is quite useful sometimes. Well, I was working at a school the other day and they, they said, oh gosh, we've just been thinking about that because when it's exam season, we kind of kettle them all into this big, almost like kind of cage thing it's not it's a it's a big playground with a you know big metal fence yeah. and he said after listening to what you were saying we've decided that maybe trapping the them isn't the best thing to <laughs> that's interesting isn't it when you think yeah. about all of that how yeah. are you sending them into an exam hall we we did with english last year we had them over and they had breakfast and a croissant and an orange juice and and sort of they just sort of went in happy and you know they'd eaten and all that kind of thing. I think that was really effective. Mm. So as mums and dads, I'm, I'm a, a simplifier, but as mums and dads, what do you think are their big priorities today for the kids with their teenagers? Keeping relationship open. Yep. Communication is the most yeah. important thing. And I think it's our job as parents to keep the lines of communication open, even when that's really hard work. And any tips on how best to do that? If you've got a... <laughs> a really tricky child that's going through a very tricky season, what are the other little tidbits that you might offer? Don't fire questions at them. You know, uh, so when they come out of school, how was your day? Fine. Oh, my gosh, you'd never guess what happened to me today. Tell them a story, because I think often with, with teenagers, particularly adults, expect them to perform. It's, it's like a performance, isn't it? I'm going to ask you a question, exactly like you were saying earlier, and then you're going to come back with an answer whereas actually if we if we you know you ask the little question then you engage them in a story or tell them about something you've read in the paper or it doesn't matter what it is but it's you giving rather than taking yes that sounds good so communication what else are, are big priorities i think unconditional love is just the greatest gift you can give a child because therein lies their sense of self-esteem you've talked already about the some of the subtle ways in which we don't demonstrate that um, in terms of performance are there any other ways or traps that we can fall into as parents that you can sort of subtly indicate that although we're saying unconditional love we're not actually showing you that 
when I'm doing one of the four hour, the, the parenting teens workshops, we start with a little exercise, which is, I'll say, you know, I'm just going to shout out a word and see which is the first word that comes into your head. And I'll just shout teenagers. And I have almost never done this in 10 years where the first five words out haven't been really negative. That's so sad, isn't it? Yeah. For those of us that work with teenagers, yeah. it's, they're, they're great. They yeah. are lovely, yeah. And, yeah. and so I think a culture, it, you know, we have to really be careful as parents that we're not falling into that cultural stereotype. And, and also the peer pressure, you know, everybody else thinks teenagers are a nightmare, therefore I think I should think. And it's just rubbish. It's just not true. So... I think viewing them in a positive light, you know, they're going to get stuff wrong. Of course they are. But yeah. actually, fundamentally, they are really wonderful people. Yeah, I mean, they do get a bad press. Yeah. And, and genuinely, in terms of how media portrayal of teenagers is often very negative, isn't it? And very kind of loose behavior and kind of, you know, just grumpy. And yeah, absolutely. You know, I think our press actually probably gives teenagers a harder time than pretty much any other press globally. Yes, because you go to some like European countries and they have a very different attitude towards teenagers, don't they? And um, it is peculiarly British sometimes how we sort of uh, highlight those negative traits. But as you say, if you work with them, they're, they're often sort of capable of the most brilliant things, yeah. extraordinary kind of kindnesses and... Um, they're also hilarious you hilarious know. <laughs> absolutely hilarious and very loyal yes. incredibly loyal yeah that's true I just I wanted to ask about kind of when parents disagree because I think you know often some of the sort of pastoral cases I've dealt with when you meet the parents you realize that actually they are very much in conflict with each other about how to raise a teenager as it were just what advice would you give to sort of parents in that situation or uh, educators in terms of helping them navigate their disagreements and find a way through it if you've got to the point of conflict then there's a fair chance that you're going to need to put in a boundary because and I always say to parents you know you don't want to have too many boundaries at any one time because actually frankly they're hard work and you know and you'll be sitting there trying to work out which one you'd said what for and mm. so keeping it simple but actually if you've got to the point of conflict then you need to have a boundary because if you don't have a boundary you're going to end up just taking chips out of the relationship between you and your other half and then between you and the kids because they get stuck in the middle between you and so I always say to them look you don't have to agree you don't have to agree but one of you has to take the lead because if one of you if you carry on the way you are as I say the children don't it becomes unsafe for them because they don't know where they are because it changes depending on who's in the room. So one of you has to take the lead and the other one has to agree to support you by not undermining you. So if, for example, it's something like tidying the bedroom, because that always seems to be a drama. If it's tidying the bedroom and one parent is really, really strict about it and the other parent really couldn't care less about it, who's going to take charge? And nine times out of ten it'll be the one that's really strict about it because they care enough to bother and the other one the deal is that when so supposing dad's in charge of the bedroom boundary when they come to you as the mum you know you have to say rather than saying oh dad's really arsy about the bedroom don't worry about it we'll sort it out later you have to say really sorry dad's in charge on this one because otherwise isn't that slightly undermining in itself or not no because i think you say dad's in charge on this dad's in charge on this one that's what does he say yeah so you you know that's the way it is Mm. so it shows that you've come to an agreement as a couple yeah 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 that's really helpful thank you 
it's quite interesting if you've got a case of you know one parent being a little bit more pushy and driven by performance and one who is sits much more in a posture of you know unconditional love and security and safety and all that sort of stuff and how you navigate yourself around that you know because you can see that the push is not really working but you can also recognize that they need a push and push and performance and little bits of achievement help to sort of inflate that sense of self-esteem so that can be a little sort of conflict area and quite awkward to manage I think so yeah but and I think it also when I when I'm talking about unconditional love and not helicoptering I'm not talking about not having great expectations yeah. for them because I think they are all capable of great things yeah. And where you've got that conflict, I think sometimes being able to understand a bit of the theory behind how we motivate people is really helpful. So that's what we spend a bit of time on during the workshops, particularly, you know, that there are ways to motivate people that don't undermine their self-esteem. And that idea of the, the results will take care of themselves if you focus on the journey. Do you think parents sometimes need to have quite a difficult, honest conversation with themselves about what their great expectations are? Because you can often try and live vicariously through your children or you want them to achieve X or Y when that's really not on their plate. They don't want that or can't achieve that, um, you know, in terms of what they've been given. And actually, you know, we I always try and get parents to think about character rather than achievements. And, and I don't know what you think about that. I think all parents... That all the parents I've ever met only really want the best for their kids. But our idea of what's best is going to be coloured by our experience and our past. And it's being able to separate out what's our stuff and what's their stuff. If we can, you know, if we can do a certain amount of reflection um, and talking to one another about our experiences going through that stage, what actually are, do we really, really want in therapy often when people ring me up um, and I've had five phone calls this weekend so I can think we can safely say the numbers are fairly high to start off with they'll very often say oh you know he or she is a very high achiever they're doing this they're doing that doing the other and that's obviously a great source of pride and has been but now that there's a car crash happening actually all they really really want is for them to be okay so it's kind of what is our role as a parent and I I personally think um, that it's to get them ready to be able to leave home, you know, and, and with a sense of self that is healthy enough to be able to cope with whatever life throws yeah, at you. Yeah. And lost. that's where having a setback is so helpful, isn't yeah. it? So helpful. Yeah. Yet parents are just so scared of them and so avoidant of failure and to leave home and to have never had a setback you know, you're actually in quite a, a vulnerable position as you step into life, aren't you? Yeah, because there are always going to be, you know, if you're top at everything at school, the minute you hit university, you're going to come up against people who are brighter and better yeah. at it than you are. And I think, you know, the minute you you develop a fear of failure, we also kill their creativity yeah. because you can't be creative if, if you're worried about getting something wrong. So I remember my eldest going off to art school for art foundation and the very first thing the tutor ever said to all of them was, in this place there's no such thing as failure and you mustn't 
worry about getting things wrong because if you do you won't ever ever be able to be an artist isn't that good yeah, yeah we should tell them all that from yeah. about the age of four it's a great <laughs> message isn't it yeah. yeah maybe i'll be an artist now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i think thank you very very much indeed and um to any listener out there do go and have a look at teen tips on online because it's a fantastic it's resource brilliant. thank you so much thank for your you, time yeah, it's a you. huge pleasure i really enjoyed it it's nice to be on the other side of the mic <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you thank you you've been listening to talking teenagers music has been by rue Paynes. editing by george purvis and james certain for more information about i can and i am charity we provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people. Visit their website at icaniam.com. Be a soul.